Uh, welcome back, everyone. And if you can have your video on, I would love that. I love to see people as I speak. So if that works for you, uh, that'd be great to uh, see people have and have people's videos uh, on as much as possible. This evening, I want to, in a way, look at the big picture about our practice. I want to give a kind of a map of what we might call the stages of our practice, the stages, we might say, of the spiritual journey. And I'm going to use work with the metaphor of the journey partly as a way of honoring one of my favorite poets, uh, Mary Oliver, who died a few years ago, and who wrote a beautiful poem called The Journey. And I'm going to, in a little while, read that poem, but I want to structure my talk in part based on her poem, The Journey, and talk about the stages of the spiritual journey. And I'll have a few reference points for the journey. One of them will be the poem. One of them will be the uh, life of the Buddha. And I'll also bring in a few other beings and recount um, material from their lives uh, from the uh, Thai forest tradition, uh, Achan Man and Achan Chan. I'll show some photos and also uh, Mei Chi Chao, one of the great uh, non-practitioners non from the 20th century. And I'll bring in also the life of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, who you can see behind me, I think. Uh, I have a photo of him with Thich Nhat Hanh. So the journey, the spiritual journey, is one of the metaphors that we use for having a sense of how practice develops. We use different metaphors. The journey is somewhat similar to the metaphor of the path, right? We we often talk about the spiritual path, which is another metaphor. You know, and we have the sense of a journey. We, we go out, we encounter new things, we often uh, bring back gifts, and we eventually come back home with the journey, that sense of the journey. The path is a little bit different. We go in a certain direction, and there are many metaphors that we use to look at the whole sense of what our practice is about. We use the metaphor of awakening from being asleep. We use the uh, metaphor of enlightenment, of coming to have more light in our lives. We talk about cutting through the veils of illusion. That's a common metaphor, for example, in Islam. We talk about liberation. Again, all these different metaphors for development. We talk about coming to 
wholeness or um, coming home and so forth. And so the journey is a very, very common metaphor for our spiritual practice. We find it in many, many traditions, uh, you know, all across the world. Um, traditions going back uh, to indigenous traditions. So we talk about the uh, vision quest of Native Americans often involves a trip or a journey. And the uh, Australian uh, Aboriginal people have what they call the walkabout, which goes through the land. Probably most of us know that in the uh, Chinese uh, Taoist tradition, the whole path is called the way, very similar to the sense of a journey. This is from um, one of the Chinese Taoist masters named uh, Tulung. He said, one who travels does so in order to open one's ears and eyes and relax the spirit. So earlier we meditated, we, we closed the eyes, <laughs> but, but hopefully uh, relax the spirit as well. From the uh, traditions of ancient India and the Upanishads, it said, long and narrow is the spiritual path, the path by which the wise, knowers of the timeless, attaining, attain to liberation. And we have uh, the journey of the ancient people of uh, uh, Israel, who in the Exodus are in slavery and imprisonment in Egypt and go on a journey from slavery to freedom. You know, that model of the Exodus, which has been also very, very central for um, uh, African-Americans. In Islam, there are many metaphors like this. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, leads people on a journey to Mecca. And in the Sufi tradition, there is also the sense of a, of a path. And it's interesting that uh, in the 1960s, and to some extent today, people using psychedelic talk about taking trips. What's that about? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They're using the same metaphor of something like a journey, right? They take a trip, they go somewhere exotic, and they come back with gifts and, and insights. So that's a little bit of a preview. So let me read, uh, let me read the poem from Mary Oliver, and I'll be referring to this continually. This is called The Journey by Mary Oliver, and you can find this very easily online. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, 
Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So I'll be referring to the poem really continually and talking about really um, seven stages that we can find in the poem that I also think map out into stages of our own journeys, of our own spiritual journeys. The first stage I'm going to call taking life for granted. Having our lives dominated by the ordinary and the habitual. The second stage is a sense of unsatisfactoriness which develops, or it might be questions. How am I living? Am I living the kind of life that I, I want to? Sometimes there may be suffering which takes us out of our, all of our habits, out of our ordinariness. The third phase or the third stage is a call for something more, wanting something more than the way we've been living. How many so far can relate to this some? in terms of your own spiritual journey, yeah. Because I'm gonna, one of the main reference points will be just asking of each of us as we go through the stages. You know, and the talk will essentially go through these stages and bring out the different dimensions, tell some stories, some of my own stories, but also ask each of us, where, where do we find a particular stage in our own experience? So the third stage was the call for something more. Maybe it's, you know, a vision or a, a sense of being called in a certain direction, or I want to do this, or I want to develop more of that. The fourth is moving away or departing from the ordinary and the habitual. Sometimes from our ordinary daily lives, sometimes not. The fifth is the process by which we get in touch with our authentic being, what we might call our authentic voice. You know, you could hear that in the poem. Slowly a new voice. I heard a new voice. You know, we find our authentic, more authentic being and our voice. There's a process of sometimes being with 
difficulties or challenges and what we might call a process sometimes of purification that we go through. The sixth stage I'm calling a stage of awakening at least to some degree of going more deeply of having insights of awakening out of some of our more unconscious and automatic patterns. And the seventh is re-entering in a way the everyday world with us changed. Entering it in experiencing in a different way. So I'm going to suggest that model and, and make connections with the poem, but I want to say that that those stages, some of us may go through them in a more linear way. I'm, you know, I'm, until I was 23, I took things for granted. And then, you know, I had something actually painful happened and I started waking up and, you know, and I've kind of been in one stage after another. It might look like that. It might not. It might look like we go through those stages Maybe, maybe we touch each of them uh, in a given week, right? So it's not necessarily linear, but I think it's helpful to really point out the different stages because we can recognize them and, um, you know, say, I'm back in my ordinary habitual mind, okay? Um, let's bring back the <clears throat> that more authentic voice. For the Buddha, it was especially, uh, he understood the spiritual journey as a kind of gradual journey. He said, uh, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop-off only after a long stretch, in the same way, the Dharma is a gradual training, a gradual progression, with a penetration to liberating knowledge only after a long stretch. But he also sometimes said that we go through stages and then we have a kind of immediate awakening which can occur at any time. You know, and there's a, a well-known chant which is chanted in monasteries and many places in Southeast Asia which talks about the immediacy of liberating knowledge being present at any given moment, all the time. You know, some of you may know the chant. It goes, Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Bachatangwe Ditapo Winyuhiti Translated, <laughs> translated is this, discovered and proclaimed by the Buddha, apparent here and now, timeless, come and see, onward ex leading, experienceable by the wise. Now the key, the key was the second, apparent here and now. So I think these maps can be, can be very helpful. So here, 
we'll go through this uh, go through the seven stages and then we'll then we'll talk together so the first is taking life for granted you know being with ordinary life everyday life in a more habitual taken for granted way uh, we may be happy we may be unhappy but we kind of live according to habits and I think we know that a lot of our lives we live by routines, right? We have all sorts of habits. You know, um, you know I was thinking of some of my personal habits. For example, um, I have a habit of when I shave, always starting on the left side. If I started on the right side, it would be very, very weird. You know, we probably have habits for all sorts of things, have habits for what we do when we wake up, when we go to sleep. How many people can immediately think of all sorts of habits you have or routines, you know, that, that are just there? And nothing wrong with a routine because, uh, or a habit, but one of the things the habits can lead to is a lack of awareness or a lack of consciousness. And of course, some of the habits are uh, not such good habits. You know, and so it's very helpful when we meditate, we often can notice the habits of our thinking, the habits of our mind, you know, and we can see how we, you know, particularly some of the habits of our, of our upbringing, you know, for the Buddha, the Buddha was brought up in his very ordinary, um, I don't know if ordinary is the word, but in his habitual life, he was brought up by his father to not be in touch with any suffering. The Buddha said later, I was most delicately brought up. His father, his mother died when the Buddha was young. His father received a prophecy from 64 wise beings who told his, the father that if the Buddha leads the household life, he will become a righteous, universal emperor, a ruler. But if he leaves the household life, he will become a wise Buddha. The father had the really strong preference for the first. And so they, uh, the wise people often also said, if you're son ever sees signs of suffering, a sick person, an old person, a dead body, a corpse, and a yogi or monk, the son will want to leave the palace. And so the king, his father said, I'm going to protect my son and not have him have, see anything that is negative. And, you know, some of the other people I wanted to point to also had their own ways of growing up. Uh, Ileana, let's show the first photo. This is one of the people I'll refer to, Achan Mun, who was, who was born in 1870 and was one of, he was really, we might say, the founder of the Thai forest tradition. Born in 1870, died in 1949. The Thai forest tradition has a direct connection in terms of lineage from, with Spirit Rock. Believe it or not, when he was young, before he became a monk, he was an amateur singer. 
Can you imagine him being an amateur singer around 1890, singing in his village? I like that story. And then uh, the next photo is that of Achan Cha. This is Achan Cha as a young monk. He also, he grew up in a, a farming family. And he, uh, you know, later he became a monk as was done in Thailand when one was young just for a short period of time and he stopped being a monk. And um, one, let's go to the next photo. This is Achan Cha later because he actually stayed being a monk. This is him when he came to Massachusetts and taught at the Insight Meditation Society as an older man. And I'm actually in this photo. If you look at the monk on the right, right above his right shoulder, there's a young person. It's me in my, in my 20s meeting Achan Cha and studying with him. Can you? I don't know if I can point that out, but you can see it's the person right above the, no, it's the left shoulder, I'm sorry, the left shoulder of the monk. Anyway. So we can let go of the uh, we can let go of the the photos, and so question would be what does ordinary habitual life look for you? Where are you still in this first stage living with ordinary habitual life? And just reflect on on your own for a few moments. For many of us, this may have been how we were when we were younger, just growing up with the assumptions of everyone around us, right? But we can now come to the second stage where some kind of question arises about that ordinary life, about the more common habitual life that we've lived up to a certain point. You know, as I mentioned, there may be some pain or suffering which pokes a hole, we might say, in our conditioning. You know, which tells us something is not quite right with the way I've been brought up or the way that everyone is living. There may be unsettling experiences. For Achan Cha, it was actually the death of his father. When he was young, when he was in, I think, in his early 20s, that led him to really hear the teachings from the Buddhist tradition about impermanence. So what was there for you? For me, uh, I was thinking about my own experience. There were certain experiences which were unsettling growing up, you know, and maybe some of them are parallel to yours. One of them was just feeling sometimes the cruelty of children to each other, including to me. And it's like, what is going on here? Another was growing up uh, in the same town with an African-American community that was across the railroad tracks. This was in Maryland, near Washington, D.C., and going to school with the African-American kids, but you know, when I would go into their community, it was just very, very different. And I was, you know, as a five, six, seven-year-old, very confused by this whole social setup. 
You know, also, I think something that was unsettling for me was starting to learn, partly as a Jewish person, about the Holocaust when I was about 10 years old. You know, what is this kind of uh, horror that exists? What is this world about? You know, and later learning about wars and so forth. And we, maybe we notice, we start to notice the habitual thoughts. You know, uh, in the poem it's saying the old tug, the bad advice of other voices. You know, and, you know, I started at a certain age when I was in my uh, early 20s to meditate and started, uh, you know, seeing if this would be kind of an answer to, to the questions. This is, a, this is a poem from the Sufi poet Rumi. Some of you may know this. It's called The Tavern. This is about his own getting unsettled and realizing he has questions that are not answered. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in the aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear? Who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here on my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. That's from the 14th century. All right, so still kind of a sense of how the, um, how the questions arise, really. So some sense that there are questions, that there's unsatisfactoriness, you know, that there, we, we notice the, the bad advice, the old, the old tug. For the Buddha, it was what are called the four heavenly messengers. He was feeling a little bit unsettled and curious, and he went beyond the palace. And on successive evenings, he saw an old person. He saw a sick person on the second evening. He saw a corpse and then a wandering yogi. And he was very confused by this, very unsettled, and questions arose in his mind about what to do, where to go. What were some of the, for you, what were some of the messengers that woke you up? Maybe we can share these during the discussion. What was unsettling for you in a way that we, you could see now was pointing to waking up more? Just reflect for a few moments. It might have been something difficult, it might have been something positive. For me also it was 
being in the wilds, you know, being doing backpacking trips in the mountains. Then the third stage is the call for something more. In the poem, Mary Oliver says, you knew what you had to do. You don't want to stay in the trembling house. You feel a call for something more than the habitual life you've been leading. And we may hear that call many times before we act on it. You know, how many can relate to that? Some of you had, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that. And then you go back to the ordinary life, right? It keeps on coming sometimes. You know, this, this is the third stage. We may hear the call. You know, for me it was, uh, you know, being in my teens and uh, early 20s and really hearing the importance of a call for justice, being really called to... Uh, be part of a social justice movement. And, but there was also more of a spiritual uh, call. I remember when I was in college and 20 years old, I met uh, Ramdas, uh, the late spiritual teacher, who was back from India. And I was in college and he came and no one knew who he was. And he spoke in a church for three straight afternoons for about four or five hours at a time. And there were only about 10 or 12 people. No one knew who he was. And I went, and I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know the hell what he was talking about. But uh, something called me. Something resonated. And you may have, how many have had even experience like that, where something was just resonating, and you didn't even know why, but something was, was like happening on an inner way. Very interesting, right, how that happened. You know, sometimes there can be dreams that we have. Anyone have dreams that were sort of telling you something or calling you? You know, a lot of people work with dreams. It's very, can be very powerful. This is from uh, Mei-Chi Chow, who was, again, one of the great practitioners, a student of Achan Man. And this is what she said about her early call. When I went to the, she's from Thailand, when I went to the monastery as a young girl, I had to be accompanied by my parents, and I wasn't allowed to mingle with the monks. Listening to the monks discuss the Dharma, I sat way in the back. The venerable meditation master taught us how to pay homage to the Buddha and how to praise the Buddha's virtues with chanted. chanting. He encouraged us to radiate loving-kindness to all living beings and to always be open-hearted and generous. He told her, us that no matter how generous we were, the virtue of that generosity could not compare with the virtue of ordaining as a white-robed nun and earnestly practicing the end of all suffering. That message I heard as a young girl always stayed close to my heart, probably eight or nine years old, and it led her to becoming a nun maybe 10, 12 years later. And so we may notice our motivation changing, notice ourselves, you know, being called to maybe to meditate or to learn meditation or to, you know, our friends change, which can be hard, right? You know, 
we we don't want to be anymore maybe with certain friends and we want to be with other friends or our, our habits change for the buddha the call was about the fourth of the messengers who was the wandering yogi and he actually said i want to i want to live a life like that i want to find out the truth of things and so again let me ask a question of each of us. When did we hear a certain call? How did we hear it? What led us to shift? When did you hear a sense of there's something more than what I've been experiencing? How many times did you hear it, maybe, and not act? Where was there resistance? So just reflect on that for a few moments. And sometimes there, the, it is very much like a call. You know, it's like a, a voice within you. Uh, Mary Oliver says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. The fourth stage, we leave the ordinary habitual life, which doesn't mean necessarily that we leave our everyday lives. It may be more of an internal shift, not so much an external shift, but we, we start living in a different way. Maybe we start meditating more. For me, it was, uh, again, in my 20s, starting to go on retreats, which were completely um, amazing. I started going on retreats, and I remember the first retreat I did at Insight Meditation Society, the Insight Meditation Retreat, in, in those days, they would have uh, beginning retreats that were two weeks long. Now we have weekends, <laughs> you know, but the, my first retreat was two weeks, which we, we don't think is a great idea now. But I, I went on two weeks and it was hard at times, but eventually I stayed with it. And I had experiences of the calm of my mind that, you know, an experience of that that was unimaginable before the retreat, a level of calm, and also the way kind of the body energy opened up in a magical way that I had never experienced before. And both of those were fairly stable in the last part of the retreat. So it was literally uh, mind-blowing. It was amazing. You know, and maybe we we start out like that. We start doing meditation or retreats. We, um, we have a sense of uh, going elsewhere. In the poem it says, it was already late enough in a wild night. You know, some of us start out late in life. One great meditation master from Thailand had been a farmer, and he started meditating when he was 70 years old. And he became a great teacher. 
He happened to live to be 120, which that was pretty interesting. Um, so for some of us, it's early. Some of us may have these, you know, may have a sense. Maybe some of us were gifted from our parents with, um, you know, a sense of what's beyond the, the taken for granted life. For others of us, it may occur, you know, at any, any given age, as a teenager, 20s, 30s, 40s, or later, you know. And so, you know, and so we, we start living in a different way. The Buddha left his home and he went in search of teachers and in search of a way in his language to see how to go beyond the suffering of life. That's one way that he framed it. His father actually told him, don't go. And his father actually had these words that were later reported. He told his son, turn away the desire of your heart. Wow, how's that for guidance from a father, right? Turn away the desire of your heart. You know, and it's said that kind of the incarnation of greed, hatred, and delusion named Mara appeared to him and tried to tell him, don't leave the palace, don't go. But he does. He leaves and he wanders for six years. Similarly, Achan Cha has a sense of disenchantment, being with everyday life, you know, presumably as a farmer. And he says, I want to really find the essence of the teachings. And he actually hears that there is this teacher wandering in the wilds named Achan Man, the person we saw. And he takes, he walks to try to find him. And it takes many, many months. And Achan Cha finds Achan Man, and he stays with him for a while. And Achan Man teaches him the essence of the practice. The fifth stage, finding our authentic being. This is in the poem where Mary Oliver talks about finding a voice which we recognize as our own. I'm talking about this as a period where we are going in this new direction, but we still have challenges and difficulties and sometimes even more. We encounter our own minds more deeply. We may have difficulties. We go through a process of what we might call purification. It's, it's a word we often use for aspects of spiritual practice where we come to grips with our own inner stuff with our own conditioning, with our own uh, reactivity, with our own, uh, with our own anger. The Buddha practices for six years. And what we often don't remember about the life of the Buddha is that he has his ups and downs in those six years, often really, really difficult. You know, and, uh, you know, he goes through a period where he engages in very little eating. He kind of puts, you know, he works with the teacher who tells him, don't eat very much. And 
he nearly dies. You know, and so there's, there's a fair amount of struggle. You know, it's said that he actually became so thin that he could press his belly and feel his backbone. Right? And so uh, we, you know, we may have our own uh, difficult experiences. Um, Achang Man, when he works with people to help them purify, he would have them to work with fear. He would have them uh, walk in front of the caves of tigers, do walking meditation in, in front of the caves of tigers. We have not brought that approach to Spirit Rock <laughs> or to our retreats, right? But he would have, he wanted people to confront their fear or their anger. You know, Achan Cha, like many people in Thailand, had a lot of fear of ghosts. And he spent a lot of time working with his own fear. This is a poem from uh, the German poet uh, Rilke about this, about the journey, really. Go to the limits of your longing. Flare up like flame. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Staying with that process of purification. And, you know, from my own personal experience, something that I've experienced continually in my own meditation and practice, particularly in a retreat context. I've had retreats which each had a focus on something challenging. I remember one retreat for 10 days, I had fear almost all day long. And I practiced with it. I saw into it. I worked with it. Another retreat, I had anger for, gosh, almost the whole retreat and practiced with anger. Another retreat, I was experiencing a, a tremendous amount of being judgmental, both of myself and others. In all of these retreats, I had very skillful teachers who guided me to stay with it. And luckily, those experiences were not super, super intense. They were kind of workable. And so I was able to work with that. So I had, uh, I had those kind of experiences um, of just being with a whole series of difficult experiences that were, you know, that taught me about the mind and heart and body, but that were not easy. And this is part of the whole process that we go through in meditation. As I sometimes like to say, we don't put this into our advertising at Spirit Rock. We don't say, please come meditate. Experience your top five neuroses. Experience anger, feel, and being judgmental, just like Donald. That's not in the advertising, is it? What's the advertising say? Find calm, insight, freedom, right? But the actuality is, at a certain stage of practice, and it's actually when we can stay with the difficulties, it's actually a sign that really uh, positive things are happening. You know, I think for some people, 
it's actually opening up to trauma that may have been there from childhood or maybe intergenerational trauma and finding ways to work both in meditation and maybe working with skilled uh, trauma practitioners. You know, when those open up, it's often uh, actually a very positive sign. This is from a poem by David White called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear. So this is necessary. We have to, we have to be with what's difficult. It's an integral part of the practice. And again, I see it as a fairly advanced stage of practice when we're experiencing this. Again, whether it's in a more linear way over the years or more cyclically where we, okay, now I'm in a difficulty phase. Part of having this kind of map of practice or a sense of stages, when we have difficulties occur, we can try to put them in the framework of practice, which helps amazingly, right? This is part of the process of awakening. We can say, oh, purification is occurring. How many of us, when we were having difficulty, say, um, you know what we sometimes say, another effing growth opportunity. Have you heard that one? Another effing growth opportunity I've heard that nowadays people studying therapy are told about fog, an effing opportunity for growth, and as part of the training for therapists. Anyway, but can we frame things so that a difficulty becomes an opportunity for learning? In the Tibetan tradition, there's a beautiful line from the uh, Lojong teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. How's that for a guide for daily life? Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. So again, for yourself, what have been some of your challenges or difficulties that really took you into deeper learning? Reflect on that for a little bit. What were some difficulties maybe at the time you wanted just to go away, but later you said, I really learned something there that was actually really important for my learning, whether it's in, could be in the context of work or relationship or illness or whatever. So now the sixth stage is awakening, at least to some degree. So for the Buddha, after six years, he had a sense that awakening was close. And he sat down by what's called the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. 
in what's now Bodh Gaya in India, and he said, let only, only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let me stay here until I attain supreme enlightenment. I will stay in this meditation seat. And he was assailed with doubt. Again, the kind of incarnation of greed, hatred, and delusion, Mara, said, you're not good enough to be a Buddha. But he stayed, and he stayed with it, and he stayed for hours and hours and hours. And eventually, he came to awakening. He said, I have found the ancient path, the ancient trail traveled by awakened ones of old. He had insights into the nature of things. For Achen Cha, this was to find what he called the old mind, the original mind. This was to be in touch with it. Achan Man, he said, I have found the radiant mind. I have found the radiant being, which is beyond actually beyond my ordinary experience. And we can ask, in what ways, even small ways, have we awakened? Again, it can be momentary. There's a sense uh, that we can have moment of awakening that can just be like a seeing clearly, and then maybe the next day, we're foggy. You know, it can be this opening to what Achan Cha called the original mind, or this is from the Tibetan tradition, a kind of a way of talking about this awakened awareness, open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And then the last phase, re-entering the everyday world. And again, re-entering, coming back into our everyday lives. Mary Oliver talks about going deeper and deeper into the world, bringing our gifts. You know, the, the British historian Arnold Toynbee says, the secret of cultural creativity is having people who leave everyday life and then return with gifts and insights. It's not always easy. You know, the Buddha came back to be with people, and he said, no one will listen. I'm not going to teach. And he got kind of, I don't know if the word is depressed, but he, he said, I don't want to continue with this. And he was convinced the king of the gods, Brahma, is reported to have come down and said, there are some with but little dust over their eyes. And the Buddha started to teach. And so we come back into the world and we're different, you know. And again, I said awakening to some degree, we may come back and we live in the world. We may go out for a while, maybe do a retreat, travel. We come back and things are different. And maybe we may repeat that cycle uh, many times. You know, when we increasingly find our own voice, and we may need to have a cycle of going on a journey, 
going through these stages and returning. Maybe we do that five times, ten times, and we come back, and we uh, things are different, but we're in the we're in the world again. This is uh, from the Zen tradition is a one uh, well-known way of describing this. And think of this in terms of the stages I mentioned. Before I had studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, this is the deeper place, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. But now that I have got its very substance, I am at rest. Now, once again, I see that mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. That's kind of a Zen way of saying this, but uh, things are different and they're the same after we've gone on the journey. So let me finish reading the poem one more time and then we can open things up. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, men my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop, you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So thank you, Mary Oliver. Thank you, Buddha and everyone else. And let's just uh, have a mo few quiet moments to see what may have resonated with you. Could be related to the poem and the talk, but maybe something else came up. Just see what's there for you. And see if there's a question you have or something you want to share. And please, if anyone would like to, uh, you could use the raised hand function and Ileana would recognize you. And you could also, if you don't want to speak uh, with a video, you could send a comment or a question to Ileana through the chat. Looks like we have a few, Ileana. Was that Susanna first and then? Susanna, correct. And then, okay. Okay, so I, I do have a question. And it has to do with what you mentioned, uh, the way in which you practiced 
with a difficulty you had. Yeah. If you had anger, you use that as your practice, etc. How is that done, actually? Yeah. How do we practice with um, a difficult emotion, a difficult, you know, something difficult, a difficult storyline? Yeah. Um, the first thing, you know, if we're doing this in daily meditation or maybe at a retreat, the first thing is to clarify the level of intensity of what's happening and see if it's workable. That's the first thing to do. Um, this, is, this is assuming that this is coming up maybe in meditation or daily life and we want to bring meditation and mindfulness to it. So first we want to clarify the level of intensity. So, for example, if, if we're experiencing something really difficult that maybe is even related to trauma, it might be overly intense and too much, too intense to use mindfulness with. So we want to clarify that first. Is it workable with mindfulness or is it overly intense? If it's too intense and we're totally caught in it and we can't really be mindful, then we use some other tool that helps us come back to balance. For something like trauma, we might even work with a professional and so forth. So assuming it's fairly workable, that we can bring mindfulness to it, uh, maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, it's in the range, maybe up to a 7 or an 8, maybe a 5 or 6 or 7 or 8, but not a 9 or a 10. And then what we would do, and this is what I did a lot in my, my anger retreat, I actually was working with uh, Jack Kornfield as a teacher. He gave me some good guidance. Um, uh, it was interesting because I was partly angry at him. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's another part of the story. I won't go into that so much. Uh, but um, the anger lasted for a long time. And basically, and it, it was in the workable range, uh, I think almost all the time. And so I would actually just stay with it. And the key was sometimes tune in to the experience in the body. What's it like in the body? What am I experiencing? Just, it's almost like changing channels. We, you know, I'd be angry and I'd be, you know, I'd be, there'd be a certain story. And I'd say, let me experience what's going on in my body. And I would feel it. I'd feel like sometimes there'd be heat or energy or fire. And I would just stay with that, you know, stay with that for a few minutes. And then I would say, let me stay with the emotion. And I would stay with anger as an emotion. And uh, I think Jack gave me particularly guidance. Notice how things change. Because if I am mindful of anger, maybe for five minutes or ten minutes, it's not going to stay the same. It's going to change. And in my experience, it even changed into other emotions. I would be with the anger, and then it would sometimes change into sadness. Right? It's interesting. There was sadness beneath the anger, you know. Um, and then sometimes I would even stay with the sadness for a while, and sometimes it would turn into love. There was love beneath the sadness. So in effect, you know, when I did that practice, I discovered things. Oh, when I really stay for a long time with the anger, gosh, there's some love behind the anger, which we, we, can, we can think, you know, intellectually we could think of, maybe anger at social injustice. And I could intellectually know, oh, yeah, that's probably connected with love of the people and wanting justice, right? You could think that, but 
experientially to go there is really helpful. And, and then just to notice what the storyline is, the narrative. So that's a way of practicing, kind of changing the channels once it's workable and staying with it over and over again, not thinking that we need to do it quickly. In my case, it was hours and hours. Jack instructed me to take some notes after the end of each meditation session. So I took notes and then I reported back to him. I had kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a whole map of all the different ways that anger appeared. And it was different, you know. Sometimes it was really petty anger and sometimes it was really self-righteous anger, you know, and it took different forms. Yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thanks Thank you. for the question. Yeah. And who's next? Is it ben. Uh, ben? Okay, and then Stephen. Yeah. Okay, I guess I'm unmuted. It appears that I am. Yeah, you're good. Good. Um, so there were many transitional points for me. Yeah. And um, one thing I discovered, and you probably have as well, is beneath all of it, there's always, if one can touch it, original mind. Yeah. Um, it's always there. Um, and then if that connection occurs, then your perspective changes. And you can observe the emotions, but they're not permanent. They're constantly changing. Right. And so you're not identified or grasping. Um, I do describe that process. And, and so you discover the different layers by just being um, and there were moments, there were times I went through when I had to do different processes. Yeah. Like I, I did family constellation work for a while. Yeah. With uh, Bert Hellinger. And that was very helpful for early childhood trauma. Um, I, I, I'm also, a, I started with Buddhism and yoga, but I also became a dervish of the Navlevi order, of Rumi's order. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, um, and maybe, Ben, if you could, you know, just be on, be on the brief side for your remaining comments so we can have other people have a chance to. Well, well, you know, the guest house, I'm sure you've heard that. Sure, poem. yeah. And that, to me, is very meaningful. This being human is like a guest house. Yeah. Um, every day, a new <laughs> uh, delight comes and sweeps my house clean an anger a, a frustration and anxiety they're they're all being a guest from god or the divine and meant to bring me a new message yeah yeah that's right like uh turn all obstacles into the path of practice and and i, li I like what you said initially uh, about, you know, you use the language of touching original mind. Other people would use different language, right? But there's some way that, um, you know, and this is really an aspect of awakening, that we may touch something which we have a sense is 
the deepest part of ourselves. You know, some might call it love, some might call it awareness. You know, some might, you know, people would use different language, different traditions use different language. But when we touch that, uh, you know, and, you know, some people would say this is the first stage of awakening in the traditional uh, model given by the Buddha. But there's a way that when we touch something, at least at some points initially, we know that this is our deeper nature. And even if I still am caught in, at times, in anger, resentment, reactivity, some part of me knows better, even if I can't always access it, right? And, yeah. and, then, and then our practice is to access as much as possible that which is deepest, whether it's in awareness practice of some kind or maybe in one of the heart practices that lets us touch love, you know, and then to connect with that. And so we, uh, we can, and this makes a huge difference in the journey because then we don't get so, what, um, identified with the challenges, the difficulties, the remaining stuff we have to purify. And we, we have a larger perspective. So that's, I think, I'm understanding that is really what you were offering, which is really an important, crucial point. Also, you, you mentioned Jack and, and the help he was to you. For me, it was Ram Dass. I spent time with him. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and also his teacher. Um, Beautiful. And other, and other people as well. There were many along the way. A Buddhist monk who was, I, I was close with. But I, I'm sure it's true for you and anyone who's been walking the, uh, the way. Yeah, very, very many, very many teachers and wonderful to hear about your time with Ram Dass. He, you know, I met him when I was 20 years old and he changed my life. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I was 28 when I met him. Yeah, in later, later, later spent time with him in other settings. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. And you can go to Stephen, sure. please. Stephen? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, oh. I really, uh, I, was I was fired as a substitute teacher about a year and four months ago. Wow. Wow. Three, three years and four months ago. At the district that I had worked with for 20 years, mm. and I was honored. And it was a very unjust thing that happened. Yeah. I still haven't been able to get over it. Yeah. And I just don't, I, I haven't been able to get over it. And um, I finally got enough nerve to write a letter to that principal. But it was such an injustice, and I did absolutely nothing wrong. Um. I just don't know how to quite get over it. Yeah and, yeah. and and I was traumatized like a thousand spider widow widows. Yeah. Uh, and and it just just can't quite get over it. And uh, so I don't know if I ever can. So that's yeah. my question. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for being willing to be vulnerable about that. Uh, let me just ask uh, people here, how many have had an experience that at least is something like that, not necessarily quite so intense? So 
Yeah, so look around, Stephen. That's really important that um, um, that occurred. I'm sorry that that happened. It's, uh, you know, um, one way to frame it is to think that there's both an inner response and an outer response. Okay, and um, how you respond, you know, you'll have to, uh, the inner response is always necessary. And sometimes the outer response is a part of the transformation and sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes we, um, but ascend and, and probably also very helpful to work with others, possibly, maybe you've done this, to work with uh, a, uh, a teacher or a therapist, uh, um, something like, like that, to work with it. Because it's what you're describing is that it's, this is big. It's bigger than you can easily handle on your own, right? And, and so... No, I think at this point, it's workable. It's workable. So yeah, not at a 10 anymore. It was a 10 or 11 for a long time. Okay. But right now, it's more like, uh, honestly, more like a 4 or 5. Well, that's, that's good. But, but that, um, to, to be Stephen, when you said, I don't know if I'll get over it, maybe you were just meaning that, you know, my thoughts about it will continue. Um, because, uh, uh, because, you know, what, what we want to look for is where it just doesn't have, you know, your, uh, your reactivity or self-judgment or whatever there is judgment about the school district or whatever. When that has, when, when it's uh, shifted some to some degree of equanimity around what happened. And, and, um, okay. So like I worked at the school district for 20 years Yeah, and I had been teaching for 35 well, and it happened right after I retired, and I didn't have the protection of tenure. Yeah, and the t the principal knew that. She wouldn't tell me what I did, and I really didn't do anything because I, and she just fired me on the spot. Yeah, and it like, my God, I had put my soul into this district, and somebody that could do that after getting a trophy by the district by the board of trustees. Yeah. And then I'm retired and they're begging me to come back. And doing this was pretty unforgivable to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the direction of our practice, like I say, it can be really helpful to distinguish between outer response and even thinking about an outer way and inner response. And the idea, again, is that your deeper nature is that of awakening and love and compassion and um, and the practices we do help to realize that but this is this is a, a challenging one and if you want to work with it you say it's you know it's uh, unforgivable it may you know I think we want to distinguish between any remaining reactivity and whether they were, you know, deeply unskillful, wrong, unjust. One could see what happened 
as wrong, unjust, unskillful, dysfunctional, use all sorts of language, and still come to a place where one is non-reactive. Think of Dr. King working for decades with these massive systems of racism. He worked all the time with trying to develop love, forgiveness, and forgiveness at the same time as acting very strongly, right? That's, that could be a model, right? So, you know, he would say, or I think we can find this in others, think of maybe uh, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, you know, where there's been major injustice, and they take that, this is related to what Ben was saying, that my deeper nature goes towards love and equanimity and wisdom, even in the face, and that, that can be my primary experience, even in the face of very clear injustice. Right? So that... And ending here, you know, and what I want to do is go back to the district and work for the district, but I feel so uncomfortable there that I feel like I can get fired on the spot. And, but that's after being there two decades. Yeah, no, I, I never hear have, that. Never having a grievance. Yeah, Stephen, but, so, yeah, no, I hear that. And so, again, um, well, I'll, I'll end in just a moment just for, for time. But I think distinguish. it sounds like it may be helpful to do some further inner work. And, it, and maybe you could, you know, again, distinguish between the inner and the outer. Uh, the outer being how you relate to the district. And it's a beautiful intention to finish up. But if you do so, this is more the outer dimension, you would need to really have very, very, very clear agreements, you know, probably in writing and so forth. And if you don't get that, then probably wouldn't feel right. And then, but continue to do the outer work, um, you know, mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion for yourself and others. And if you wish, uh, forgiveness practice can be very powerful. I have... Uh, I have several talks on, uh, on forgiveness that are on the website Dharma Seed. If you send your email to Ileana on the chat, she can send that to me, and I'll send you some links of talks and practices. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. And also, I'll just end with, I cannot get anything in writing. I know that. Okay. And I think also loving kindness is a good way for me to go. Yeah. So... Sometimes the outer response isn't going to work because of causes and conditions. And then it's primarily the inner work. You know? And that's what I think it is. That's it's how it is sometimes. Work. Not your first choice, but that's how it is. Thank you, Donald. You're a very special guy. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Thank, thanks for your kind words. and um, To be continued. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for the, really, the heartfelt uh, inquiries. Let's finish now in uh, two ways. First, to bring to mind what may have been helpful from our time together. And any intentions that you have coming out of our time together. Not necessarily even related to the talk or the theme, but just what might have been up for you 
what um, what comes out of the time together and what intentions is there an intention or two that come out And then secondly, we'll close with the traditional dedication of merit. May our evening, our time together, be of benefit to ourselves. May our evening and time together be a benefit to those in our lives. And then beyond those circles, may our gathering, our explorations together be a benefit to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. May this be a benefit to all beings. So thank you for your very kind attention and listening and being together and um, until next time, if you want to unmute, you could say goodbye, and uh, I'll hang out for here for a little bit, and I'll, I'll do my little movement, if you want, it's what I use to greet and say goodbye to people on Zoom, so thanks everyone, and until next time, and feel free to unmute, and thanks to Ileana, yay Ileana for all the support, thanks yay Ileana, Thank you, Donald, for sharing your inner being and your experiences with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.